<laughs> off of my own land there. Uh, are you with us? I am present. <laughs> Excellent. Welcome to episode four of Avec IO. In this episode, we welcome back Steve Capon of Harvest Heating and Air Conditioning to discuss the types and uses of heat pumps, efficiency ratings, and much more. Walk with us. Okay, we had, we had uh, I think I had briefly mentioned the, the idea behind a heat pump. I mean, this is true, not just with the layman, but with um, service technicians. The element of magic is strong when it comes to heat pumps. So... As I said previously, everybody knows how a an air conditioner works, blasts heat outside and blows cold air inside. And the heat pump, all we do is we flip the locus of heat rejection. So in the wintertime, we're actually refrigerating the outdoor air and we're keeping the heat inside the house. And the magical item in there that makes that happen is the reversing valve. So when you're in the heating mode, the refrigerant's going one direction. When you're in the cooling mode, it goes in the opposite. Reversing uh, valve? Reversing valve. Refrigerant reversing valve. It just makes the refrigerant take a different a different path. Oh. So that's, that's that's what that's what prevents us. Remember we had talked from me having to come out to your house to move the equipment annually or twice annually if you need cooling or you need heating. Right. The reversing valve does it does it for us. Seems like a good good gig for a service tech, though. <laughs> <laughs> Job security. You're going to save all this money on energy, but it's going to cost you two thousand dollars in the spring <laughs> and in the fall. Furnace man. <laughs> exactly. Again. <laughs> um, so you got the 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 types of heat pumps. You're going to have an air to air style heat pump, meaning the heat transfer goes refrigerant to air outside. And it goes refrigerant to air inside. Remembering we had we had spoken briefly about the refrigeration cycle. In the refrigeration cycle, you have a compressor, which is an air or a gas pump, and it pushes refrigerant throughout the system. You know, to the two sides of the system, the place where the refrigerant is being changed from gas to liquid, and on the other side of the equation, where it's changing back from liquid to gas. So the compressor only sees gaseous refrigerant so even though it's changing state from gas to liquid then liquid back to gas okay so the refrigerant cycle is going to produce heat on one side and it's going to produce uh cooling on the other side a cooling effect or refrigerating effect we had talked about uh, dehumidifiers where they kind of produce more heat than they do cooling that's what makes uh, a heat pump so cost effective because you're getting some free heat and the free heat is uh from the compression of the refrigerant it generates it generates heat so you're compressing the refrigerant and it automatically uh well not automatically but as a function of being compressed it gets hotter so and you've seen that everybody's seen that when you see a if you've ever seen an air compressor you know you feel touch the air compressor and the air compressor gets hot and it's blowing may have warm air uh, radiating from it or being blown across it. So when you have a heat pump, you're capitalizing on that byproduct heat generation and deciding to keep it 
as opposed to discharging it outside. So you get more heat out of it than you do cooling capacity. So an air-to-air means it's a refrigerant-to-air transfer inside, refrigerant-to-air transfer outside. Okay, So that's what characterizes an air-to-air heat pump. And there are several types of those, which we'll go into in a few minutes. But the other type of heat pump would be a geothermal or a water source heat pump. And what's happening there, air is a fluid. So on one side of the equation, we're going to switch one of the fluids to water. So what we're going to do, we'll say in the summertime, instead of heating outdoor air, pulling in, we'll say 90 degree air, it's 90 degrees outside, 90 degree outdoor air, passing it across the coil, boosting it to 120 degrees. On that side of the equation, what we're going to do is get a refrigerant to water heat exchanger instead of a refrigerant to air heat exchanger. And that refrigerant to water heat exchanger then is going to warm the water that's passing over the uh, heat exchanger. Instead of warming air, we're going to warm water. And then we're going to circulate it through tubes in the ground. The ground then acts as a heat sink where we will warm the water from 77 degrees to approximately 84 degrees, somewhere like that. The ground naturally being around 60 degrees to 50 degrees, somewhere in there, you know, a relatively constant. It will then give up that heat to the earth and the water will return to the heat pump at uh, 77 degrees. So it's going out, it's at 84, coming back at 77, and that cycle repeats itself. Then on the inside, it's air to refrigerant heat exchanger again. So that part stays the same. Then when you flip modes from cooling to heating, remember we talked about it, we're going to switch the locus of heat rejection. We're going to reject the heat inside. We're going to keep the heat, and then we're going to refrigerate that water, circulate it through the water, or circulate it through the ground, and the ground is going to actually warm the water. So it's going to go out at 26 degrees, and it's going to come back at 32, okay? Remember, we had previously talked about uh, the balance point for, like, an air-to-air heat pump being around 32 degrees. Mm-hmm. The point at above 32, it can heat the house, and below 32, it needs help. Mm-hmm. When it gets to 20, the capacity of the machine begins to drop off, and you have to have that auxiliary heat source, okay? With geothermal... Because the ground is so stable in temperature, it never thinks it's getting any colder outside than 32 degrees. So both its capacity and efficiency. Why 32? I thought you said 50 to 60. Well, that's what's gonna. That's the impact it's gonna have on the ground. Okay. okay? Start of the heating season, the ground is gonna be between 50 and 60 degrees. Okay. okay? But as we're pumping refrigerated water, oh right, out into the ground, it begins to cool it down. Okay. So. Uh, geothermal heat pumps are rated um, with two constants. Wintertime operation is 32 degree entering water, and in the summertime, it's 77 degree entering water. Okay, those are fixed constants. Yes, the machine will oscillate above or below those below those set points, but they've chosen those two values as the most common. Uh, the most common operating uh, mode that the unit's going to be in, okay? Whereas uh, an air-to-air heat pump, let's, let, in fact, let's, let's talk about efficiency ratings because that's going to help understand that SEER rating is how an air conditioner is rated, and that's seasonal energy efficiency ratio. It essentially boils down to BTUs per watt. 
So if you have the minimum standard right now is 13 uh, sear. So it's 13 BTUs of watt or per watt of electricity consumed. It will absorb 13 BTUs of heat. Okay. You can get air to air machines that'll, that'll uh, get up over 20. Okay. There's kind of a, a terminal limit uh, as far as how efficient you can get them with current technologies. So that's seasonal energy efficiency ratio. And the reason there's a seasonal component in it is uh, because you have uh, varying temperatures at which the the air-to-air section, the outdoor section, varying temperatures that it's going to operate under. So it's 95-degree day, okay? Standard 13 sear. It's just a plain uh, air conditioner. It's 13 BTUs per watt. And during the day, it's running when it's 95. But then overnight, when it gets to 75, right, that's going to alter the efficiency of the unit. Mm-hmm. So what, if we take the seasonal component off and we just call it EER, energy efficiency ratio, when it's 95 out, it might only be 10 BTUs per watt. But then overnight, when it's 75 degrees, okay, it might be producing 14.2 BTUs per watt. So in order to compensate for that in the, in the understanding of, of its actual efficiency, they'll take the total number of BTUs of heat absorbed by the machine during a, a cooling season, okay? Take that total number and then divide it by the number of watts it consumed, and you arrive then at an average. Yeah. So EER and SEER are, are different creatures, Okay. So an air conditioner is seasonal because it has to compensate for the changing outdoor temperature conditions. Now, we talked about the geothermal, where the assumption is made it's always going to be 77-degree entering water, okay? So there is no uh, seasonal component. They're just assuming in the rating uh, uh, process, and that's rating for both capacity and efficiency, how much cooling it will do and how many miles per gallon it gets, you know, because that is... For SEER or EER, think miles per gallon. It's the easiest way. The bigger the number, the better. Okay. So when you have uh, EER being considered for a geothermal, they're assuming it's always 77. Okay. So they aren't. Is that realistic in <clears throat> most, in this climate or? Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. It's very realistic. In fact, most machines don't get to 77. Even You, know, you might get to 77 or above it. If we have like a two-week stretch where it's daytime highs over 95 degrees, you know, you can drift away from it. What they've decided is that at 77 degree entering water, if the ground loops that we talked about are sized properly, okay, and the unit itself is sized properly for the structure, that that unit is pretty much in the dead of summer is always going to be having 77 degree entering water. Okay. Systems do vary. You're absolutely correct. They do vary because you'll start the season when it's with 58 degree entering water. Okay. But then as you slowly operate the machine, it slowly begins to warm the temperature of the earth up a little bit until hopefully you hit a plateau somewhere around 77 degree entering water. Okay. So they've made that assumption. So there's no seasonal uh, component at all. They're assuming it's going to be 77-degree entering water. It will be X uh, capacity at that and X efficiency, okay? So when you have uh, uh, the opposite equation 
for an air-to-air heat pump, they've actually started moving to a COP, but it used to be heating season performance factor, and they would rate the machine assuming it was what its heat output was when it was 42 degrees. COP? Well, I'll come back to COP, but HSPF is heating season performance factor, which means it's going to produce X number of BTUs per watt at 42 degrees, okay? So when you drop to 30 degrees or 20 degrees, that heating season performance factor, that actual number is going to come down, okay? So the air-to-air is rated in that sweet spot of 42 degrees. Mm -hmm. They have since moved to COP, and I to tell you the truth, I don't know the standard because the COP is the standard that we would use for geothermal, okay? And that's for heating. So it's SEER for an air-to-air product, SEER rating for cooling, okay? Seasonal energy efficiency ratio boiled down to BTUs per watt, with a heat pump, it's EER. Then in the wintertime. Removing when, the seasonal. That's right, removing the seasonal. So okay. it's just BTUs per watt at the assumption of 77-degree okay. entering water. So the uh, heating performance on the air-to-air has, is shifting. Now you can, you'll get both ratings. You'll get a COP and you'll get an HSPF, which is heating season performance factor. I don't know what the COP rating is uh, for... I don't know what the standard is, the uh, ASHRAE or, or whoever the deciding authority is on that standard, but they've moved it. They've kniped that from the coefficient of performance COP, which was used for uh, geothermal units. And what that is, we had talked previously with electric resistance. You get 3.41 BTUs per watt. That's the constant in the equation. There's no way around it. If you're going to heat an electric element or a piece of ceramic, you're going to get 3.41 BTUs for every watt of electricity consumed. So, coefficient of performance, that 3.41 is your constant. The coefficient of performance is variable by unit. It's efficiency. And that is placed in the equation and you multiply it. So, let's, we're going to call the 3.41, we're just going to call it 3, okay? So, if the COP is 4... You'd multiply its rating of 4 against the 3, and you'd wind up with 12 BTUs per watt. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what happens is, if you're going to, we're going to use the $100 heat bill analog again. If your electric resistance element heating bill was uh, $100, okay, if you had geothermal, it would be $25, right, with a COP of 4. Okay, so you're getting four times as much heat for the same watt of electricity. The same is true for an air-to-air heat pump, typically 32 degrees and above. You're going to get somewhere very close to four BTUs uh, per watt. Wow. And then it drops, yeah, and it drops off precipitously, okay? So that's why heat pumps came to... uh, uh, came to popularity in the 70s. You guys are too young to remember the energy crisis but heat pumps really took off then because it was this unused odd artifact uh that they discovered with air conditioning then somebody thought about well wait a minute what if we kept the heat and refrigerated uh refrigerated the outdoor air you know so the heat pump idea is you're you're changing where you're pumping the heat you can either pump it to the inside or you can pump it to the outside and when you're pumping into the outside obviously you're in cooling mode when you're pumping in the inside you're you're in heating mode so that is a lot of 
information there. Let me um, just back up for one second. I, I just want a little bit of clarification on the, that assumed 77 degree entering water. Mm-hmm. That's through the winter as well. No, no, that's the that rating is thirty two. Oh, I, I see. I forgot okay. to clarify that. So okay. it's rated. I, yeah, it's it's cooling rating is is based on a seventy seven degree entering water. Ah, gotcha. And its heating mode is is rated at thirty two degree entering water. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. <clears throat> I didn't I didn't realize that the ground would fluctuate that much in temperature. Well, you're refrigerating it, you know, because what you're doing is you're you've you've warmed the water, or cooled the water, and you got a two hundred foot right. borehole. Technically, it's a borehole. In the vernacular, it's a well, but they drill a borehole and then we line it with tubing. Mm -hmm. So you get it just like garden hose. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. garden hose, but just take a garden hose, put a U-bend on it and send it down 200 feet and comes back up. And uh, 200 feet, really? 200 feet is the typical standard. Wow. Um, I've invented uh, uh, some stuff that's patent pending and some has been granted, but we got a means by which we can go to only 75 feet. Mm because the the uh, the reason we have to go to 200 feet is not to involve uh, extra soil or extra mass it's actually to compensate for the insulating value of the tubing itself mm. the tubing we use is high density polyethylene same thing that they make army men out of you know <laughs> and if you if you ever had access to a soldering gun you you know weld a foot onto the chest of one of the infantrymen. That's exactly how it spells. I mean, it's the exact same thing, but it's that, that tubing is like a, is like an eighth of an inch thick. Mm. And so in order for us to get the heat transfer, we have to go to 200 feet. So there's a delay because of it. If you were to do it in copper pipe, it would be a lot quicker, way faster. But Mm. the problem with copper is you're going to have a hard time getting it to go down a borehole and plus copper is somewhat reactive you know it's reasonably noble but you know it's it's vulnerable to galvanic uh galvanic events Mm -hmm. so um what we're using is in in the invention suite is we invented a means by which you can connect hdpe which is how we manifold so if you have one well per ton so if you have a four ton unit on your home you're going to have four boreholes. So we manifold with the HDPE because it's all fusion welded together. So you're never going to have a, a leak because a mechanical joint would be problematic with expansion and contraction. You don't want something unscrewing itself, mm. you know, buried seven feet uh, down in the ground. So it, everything is butt fusion or socket fusion welded. So you manifold it and you join that all into two pipes. So we got a supply pipe going out. It breaks out into four down loops. You know, the down portion of the of the uh, of the borehole, and then you have the four returning. You know, coming back. So you have a supply and a return, and the uh, the manifolding process of getting the supply connected to the supply to each individual well, and then each return from each individual well. Uh, is what you'd call manifolding, all right? We in, or I invented a, a device that allows us to marry to corrugated stainless steel tubing. So the heat transfer, and all you got to do is, if, is everybody's probably familiar with dry ice, you know, frozen carbon dioxide, then it'll burn you. Well, if you take a piece of HDPE 
two flat pieces and make tongs with your fingers and pick up a piece of dry ice, it's going to take two or three minutes before you're to the point of burning your fingers. Just from the thickness, the insulating, the R value or K value of the of the uh, uh, HDP itself, it's just not a very good conductor. Mm-hmm. Do the same thing with O12 stainless steel, and you'll be burned immediately. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea. So the Earth will take the heat. We have to go to 200 feet because we have such a, an ineffective heat transfer medium in the HDPE. Mm-hmm. So, and the stainless steel is inherently noble. Right. And there's a couple of other tricks we've got up our sleeves, so we're not uh, going to have corrosion issues down the down the road. But the, the likelihood of running into a super adverse geological strata vein that typically occurs around here, most places below 75 feet. You know, you have a rock shelf or or, mm. or dolomite or some unbelievably hard substance that's difficult to drill through. You're able to stay above that, and roughly quarter the time that it takes to do a, a, mm. a borehole. Well, everything we had currently, the geothermal has a, a federal tax credit, so the uh, federal government will give you a, a credit on your taxes. It's not a deduction; it's an actual credit mm. to try to induce you to go to this greener uh, technology. And what we were trying to do with everything that we've got in the invention suite is reduce the installed cost. Because as you can imagine, uh, geothermal is really expensive to install. So you mm. need that. <laughs> you need that tax credit to help uh, help make it cash flow. So al- along with that expense for installation, what can a homeowner <clears throat> expect for committing um, a piece of land? for those boreholes or those wells? Well, it's, let's go to our four-ton our four ton uh, system. And it's, it's not all vertical. You can go horizontal. I mean, there's, there's a variety of ways of doing it. You can do a slinky with trenches um, where you don't dig as deep, but you dig longer and have more tubing and soil contact. Um, but if we were trying to – it doesn't take as much space as people think. Imagine a 15-foot square, Okay. You'd have a f- one borehole at each corner, okay? So it doesn't take up that much space. Now, the drillers, for whatever reason, they just hate moving their rig. I mean, they, I mean, they like, hate moving <laughs> the rig. So they would prefer to do them right in a line, okay? So once again, though, you've, you've got 15, you got a well 15 feet, a well 15 feet, a well and 15 feet, so you're at 45 feet, you know, that's that's all you need for a straight run um, in order to get them all uh, in one place. So doing a doing a four square like I was just talking, they don't, they're reluctant to do that mm. <laughs> just because they don't like moving the drill. You so know, because they have to set it up. They have outriggers, and I, I get it, but it, it – So it's probably not feasible for someone on a – uh, city lot that's oh no absolutely is it is you oh, know most people can accommodate you know we can go front back front yard backyard i mean with their easements and their utility issues that you have to you have to be mindful of but no it'll in most city lots unless they're super tiny you can get a 15 foot square you know what but you've got to be able to get a rig up on the yard right that's right, but there are guys. Just thinking that have about more, my own house. Yeah, there are guys that have more compact units okay. you know, that don't have a huge, a huge tower. Would you ever put like a garage over the top of it, or put put these under a structure? 
Um, a structure, mm-hmm. yeah, you could do that. I mean, we've the up in Northridge, Northridge, Northridge neighborhood. Mm-hmm. There are fifty-four holes under the parking lot mm-hmm. at at uh, oh, really? the Racket Club. Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't ever have to get back to those for no, and that's the HDPE or stainless. If you're putting it in the wells or forever. Well, you know, and they're not exposed to, you know, we're talking 77 to 32. They're not exposed to obscene, you know, temperature swings like a a rubber hose in your engine, Mm -hmm. you know, which is seeing some pretty outlandish uh, change in temperature. These are stable and in in a sweet spot, but it's not fatiguing the equipment which brings up another thing we do it though we call it a, a water to air heat exchanger we actually do introduce um antifreeze in it because you can refrigerate the water down to 26 24 22 degrees mm-hmm. and we, we don't want it freezing and we really don't want it flash freezing uh which after the end of the cycle if you aren't rich enough you're moving that with via a pump okay you're moving the fluid through the heat exchanger then down to the buried heat exchanger which is what your loop field is okay mm-hmm. when the pipe or when the pump stops at the end of the cycle sometimes if you don't if you're an adequately dope <laughs> it freezes immediately once the motion the motion stops mm-hmm. so you have to make certain you're rich enough mm-hmm. to prevent a, a, a slushing or a, a flash freezing event mm-hmm. and that does inhibit the efficiency water's better heat transfer agent Mm -hmm. but once again it's not like you got to do a flush and uh uh, a flush and change out the glycol it's not exposed to temperatures like an engine would where the you know the the antifreeze degrades the lifespan of the antifreeze is indefinite because it's not exposed to super high Hmm. uh high extremes so Hmm. the other thing i did want to talk to talk about was uh mini split hmm. uh type of heat pump okay yeah and the mini split they're sometimes known as ductless okay mini splits uh, they were typically in the far east uh heating is done through in-floor and uh, cooling since there's no ductwork with in-floor heat they had to have a means of of cooling so it's a similar concept to a window unit Except what they do is they remove the outdoor coil and the compressor, the thing that's generating all the noise in a window rattler or window unit, right? They remove all that noise generating stuff down to the ground, and then you just have the interior fan and cooling coil inside the building. And they have various types. You can get little air handlers where we can put a little bit of duct on. You can get wall consoles that hang off the wall, and they're they're getting gaining in popularity. A lot of people are getting more familiar with them you might see them in a, a high-end hotel mm-hmm. um but it's the same concept in terms of air delivery your supply and return are coming from one spot you know just like a window unit only you don't have the noise that's associated with it and you don't have anything hanging out a window mm-hmm. so they have various types of consoles we can put little bits of ductwork on it but those units um they uh they are predominantly uh, made in the Far East. They've mastered it, so they're reasonably affordable. But they they also know that uh, uh, they also know that they're replacing ductwork, so the equipment is more efficient. But they are obscenely efficient in the cooling mode. I mean, like freakishly, sear ratings twenty seven, twenty eight. But 
that's as a result of DC motors and everything, high mm. efficiency motors, and the compressors themselves are are uh, variable speed. So remember we talked about that we're sizing to 95, the worst case scenario. So if you have two ton two ton air conditioner in your house, thousand square foot house, you have a two ton air conditioner. If it's 82 and very humid and you want to run the air conditioner, right? You're getting two tons of cooling, even though the load is not the full two tons because the full two ton load is when it's 95 degrees out. So the unit has a tendency to be oversized most of the year. Okay. We talked about dehumidification being a function of runtime. That means that if it's 82 and extremely humid, which we've the last five summers, we've had periods where it's just it's subtropical humidity and it's only 84 degrees out. Sometimes you do have to nudge your thermostat setting down just a little bit in order to create more runtime in order to better dehumidify. Hmm. Okay. The mini splits have a variable speed compressor. So it's it's really quite astounding. So So they can run without having to cool. That's right. A two ton unit, remember that's twenty four thousand mm-hmm. BTUs. They can throttle all the way down to five thousand BTUs. Hmm. And it's pretty it's similar to what, what we would call proportional uh, proportional control. So if the temperature is it's only a half degree offset point, it's going to try to give you a f- just a little bit of capacity to see if that'll pull it off. And then if the temperature continues to get warmer, it'll recognize that and it'll ramp up and give you more cooling. Hmm. Okay. So it drives a longer cycle during periods of partial load, which means better comfort. And it also means, remember we talked about sear rating, okay? It also means that the efficiency uh, goes through the roof. Like I said, there are machines that are air-to-air machines that are 28 sear. It's 28 miles per gallon versus the standard, which would be 13. It's it's impressive. Hmm. Well, those are also capable of heat pump maneuver. Now, it used to be uh, I was concerned about installing because we're in Iowa, and it would mean that in a typical... Uh, setup, we would need that auxiliary heat that we talked about. And they now have uh, many split air conditioners that will will achieve full capacity all the way down to uh, minus 15 degrees. So, Is that a product of their efficiency <clears throat> or what, what's it a, why are they? Well, I was, was, when I first heard about it, I'm like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. That's, that's magic. Right. There is no magic. Daddy will not have magic. <laughs> Daddy no lie. <laughs> Daddy no lie. <laughs> so it, it what it is is if you buy a two ton, and they they do have limits. Remember we talked about two, three, four, five ton. Okay, mm-hmm. as the typical uh, sizing of the equipment. Before and, you keep going there, mm-hmm. a ton. You keep saying ton, and I don't know what that means. Can you tell me what it's, that that's twelve thousand BTUs? Why, why is it called ton? a ton? You know what. I at one time knew, but like Sherlock oh, Holmes, if I don't need to know it, <laughs> I don't keep it in my head. <laughs> okay. So okay. it's out of the vault. And now I, I am. It's probably Willis Carrier is probably the one who uh, oh. developed that terminology. And I don't know why it's a ton because okay. 12,000 BTUs will not freeze. 2,000 pounds of water. (laughs) That that I do know. So that's not what it is. All right, where were we? Oh, yeah, I never remember what we were talking about. 
the having the full capacity down to uh, <clears throat> uh, minus 15. Remember, everything we've said prior is with an air-to-air heat pump. 32 is its sweet spot, okay, where it's putting out enough heat for your house. And when it gets below that, its capacity starts to drop off because it has a harder time refrigerating. Remember, in the heating mode, it's going to refrigerate the outdoor air. Has a harder time refrigerating the air, so its capacity begins to drop off. Okay, and I could not figure out how they were getting a two-ton unit to deliver twenty-four thousand BTUs of heat at minus fifteen, let alone twenty degrees. And I figured it out. I checked the electrical, uh, the power consumption. And I surmised, in your two-ton unit, they have put a three-and-a-half-ton compressor. <laughs> and in the cooling mode, they have a governor in there, and they're only going to let it turn on, we'll say, 50% speed. So this three-and-a-half-ton compressor is only delivering two tons of cooling capacity. But then when it gets bitter cold out, right, it then throttles up and exceeds that 50% governor and can go all the way to 100%. So you thought you were buying a two-ton unit, and in the cooling mode, it's governed at two tons, but then in the wintertime, it can throttle up to full capacity, so it's a three-and-a-half-ton unit that happens to put out 24,000 BTUs of heat when it is minus 15. Mm. And it, the deal is, because that going back, remember we talked previously, uh, the air-to-air heat pump, sweet spot at 32, starts to lose ground. What also happens is because it's producing less heat, it's doing less work. So its power consumption drops. Drops dramatically. So we'll say at 32 degrees, it's pulling 18 amps at 208, 230. And when it's zero degrees, it's only pulling 6.5 amps. Okay? It's doing less work. It's producing less heat. Remembering the colder it gets outside, the harder it is to refrigerate the air. Okay, mm. so it's consuming less power, and it was the discovery on their performance sheets that because they aren't telling you how they're able to do it, right? I'm just trying to figure it out because you know that would be a miracle if they had <laughs> a two-ton compressor and it was doing this. But now they just have a larger compressor, limited or governed to only produce two tons of cooling, and then in the in the winter time it can throttle up to. And I don't know that it's three and a half, might be a four ton. I don't know what it is. Daddy-like so, or? Yeah, definitely, because it gets us away from the need for uh, typical air-to-air heat pumps. Pumps have a, electric resistance elements as their auxiliary heat source. Hmm. And if you get a really cold patch, your utility bill, remember you're only getting a quarter of the heat for every watt of electricity consumed. You can just absolutely be blown out of the water by your electric bill. Avec.io is a production of Avec Design Build, an architect-led design build firm that believes in working alongside every entity involved in a project, as a team, with each other, for the same end goal. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.